Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is an ad-free, listener-supported community project. People always ask me, how can I join Team Human? And I usually tell them, if you're alive, you're already on Team Human. Just go find the others. But if you want to get some skin in the game, I encourage you to go to teamhuman.fm and click on support to join teammates like Lucky Barrett, Daniel Della, Will Helmke, Al Kimmy, and Aaron Cully, who've become supporting members and gain access to our Discord channel, our Team Human Spatial Audio Lounge, where we hold impromptu salons with recent guests, and perhaps most important, our Team Human Team Feed, with bonus content including conversations I've had over the years with legendary Team Human pioneers, including Timothy Leary, Terrence McKenna, Joanna Harcourt-Smith, Nina Graboy, Genesis Briar Peorage, and many, many others. You can even get books t-shirts, sign membership cards, and the knowledge that you're keeping a roof over our editor's head. Join Team Human and gain access to our shared dream space every night during your sleep. See you there. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. We believe we amount to more than our utility value, something beyond the inputs and outputs, a weird, squishy, cosmically connected, consciously inflected approach to life that requires more than anything a cohort of co-conspirators. Yes, you've found the others. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my local hero and a lifelong community and climate activist, Frank Broadhead. I think this dichotomy between what we hope and the rays of sunshine that we see or think we see or want to see is often in conflict with what we think. It's almost beyond imagining how the Team Human human species can pull out of this uh, climate crisis before total disaster sets in. On the other hand, uh, what would be the point of giving up in uh, despair? Frank will be helping us transform our rage and despair into hope 
and action. It's not too late to intervene on our own behalf. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. I've been watching a lot of TV lately, mostly in the evenings, and uh, it's kind of, you know, a wind-down pandemic activity, I guess, and ended up wanting to watch this show or that show and then subscribing to this service and that service and Peacock and CBS this and Paramount that and blah, blah, blah. But um, it's weird. I was on uh, uh, HBO Max and happened upon this um, four-part movie version of War and Peace that I thought was going to be some kind of, you know, one of these new Netflix style, you know, miniseries, you know, that kind of high budget Game of Thrones sorts of things. But it was actually a Soviet version of War and Peace that was directed by an actor named uh, Sergei Bondarchuk. And it's this famous, although I had never encountered it before, this famous, you know, 1960s epic out of the Soviet Union, where the director had, you know, full access to the Soviet army so he could dress, you know, 15 or 20,000 soldiers in, you know, war and peace era uh, costumes and stage these giant battle scenes. And also it's this, you know, tremendous, tremendous, you know, epic of war and peace. But it's, um, you know, it's not just epic in the way that our, uh, like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and Cecil B. DeMille kinds of movies are epic. It's it's epic in in size occasionally with these giant battle scenes that you, you know, fly over in an airplane and see thousands of people and to scene after scene after scene in one giant continuous shot. I mean, it's giant epic like that. But it's also, um, it's made with the the kind of the, the cinematic self-consciousness of uh, uh, Kubrick or or David Lynch or or Goddard and then the acting in this thing you know and I studied acting and directing and all and I know my Stanislavski from my uh, Michael Chekhov but boy this was was it's like Stanislavski method acting done the way that I understand now what the group theater was talking about when the Stanislavski actors came to America and did their checkoff plays and everybody was floored. It's it's something else. It's like it's got the the realism, the emotional reality um, that we think of as like a method actor thing. You know, the the Al Pacino, uh, Marlon Brando acting style, but it's also so. Filled. It's so Russian. It's so over the top, but but filled out. So you see these scenes with you know a, a young woman, you know, um, all upset that she's not going to get to marry the one she wants to marry, and that she wants to kill herself and throwing herself around. But it doesn't feel overacted. It feels so filled. It's it's um, sort of a different way of moving through the world. Different kind of human. Very real, but. Gah, you know, so you watch something like this and I watch it, it's, you know, it's four nights, it's like, you know, six hours, seven hours of movie, every single moment, every single scene, um, you can watch it three times, you know, once to see what's going on, once just to watch the camera work, and then again, and just to watch the acting, because these scenes, you know, he'll do a, a single cut, like one of those Robert Altman 12-minute, you know, shots with no cuts, he'll do that again and again and again and again, um, but in such complicated ways, and that you don't even notice it, that that's happening, you just feel the continuity, you know, so I finally finished that thing, and I go back, and I 
try to watch, uh, you know, uh, uh, The Expanse on uh, on Amazon Prime or or one of these, you know, Netflix shows, and they just suck, you know, compared to this stuff, this this Kurosawa level cinema. You know, I mean, it's not a fair comparison, right? But but this is like Kurosawa level stuff, or or Visconti, or or early uh, uh, Bertolucci, or even, um, uh, you know, I was looking for something real again to watch, you know, and I, I happened on like Godfather 2, right? So Godfather 2 kind of does it. It's at least an American who's reaching for this other thing that cinema can do. And I, I happened on it just near near the end when there's a... um. Al Pacino, who's now the godfather, he kind of, and he's just like going to kill his brother or just killed him or something. And um, he flashes back on this scene where um, they're at a, a dinner table and there's a birthday cake coming. It's going to be, you know, the the original Marlon Brando godfather's birthday and the whole family is there kind of getting ready for it and kidding. And you see actors who weren't even in this movie, right? Because they were killed in the first movie. They come back and then you can't help but think, well, is this like an outtake or something? from the original movie that they didn't use or what is it i mean so it's it's it becomes like a, a a meta commentary on memory and cinema and these actors and greatness and who's the real godfather and brando doesn't show up in that he was alive when that was shot but he doesn't he doesn't show up in that because that's like almost too much he's the godfather from the last film or you look at what else in that movie you look at um the casting of robert de niro as the young Marlon Brando walking through New York and, you know, becoming the godfather. So you think just taking an actor, a young actor like De Niro, and putting him in the role of the future Marlon Brando, that's an act of casting hubris, right? And it's a casting hubris that's equivalent to the hubris of the young Don Corleone coming in and replacing whatever that godfather was. It's also the elevation of an actor, which it was for him. This was the elevation of Robert De Niro to Marlon Brando-like status. And I'm, 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 I'm thinking of movies like that, of cinema and art, popular culture at that level. The only, you know, American filmmakers who really go to these places, a place of this, you know, Soviet, Russian uh, uh, war and peace are are folks like Kubrick, I mean, and Lynch. We still see some great acting, you know, there's some great acting, even in these, these new uh, uh, Netflix and HBO shows, you'll see that happen, but it's usually in smaller kinds of moments. We see great acting in the, in the, the quiet movies, like, um, Oh, now I can't even remember the name. The one, you know, about the woman who's a, a kind of a, a migrant uh, worker in America. She works in Amazon and drives around in her van. And, you know, it's beautiful moments of acting on the American frontier, but they're quiet. We, we do that. But what's going on in this Russian film, what made it feel so team human to me was this just a celebration of mm, the passion of being of being a person, that that deep spirit. It, it reminds me of kind of the difference between the animation of the 1950s and 60s Warner Brothers crazy characters compared to today's, you know, Pixar characters. The Pixar characters, there's verisimilitude, you know, in these computer-generated characters, but, you know, what Chuck Jones or Tex Avery were trying to do with Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and these characters 
when they were drawing them, you know, basing them on on you know the work of 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 Charlie Chaplin and and Laurel and Hardy and and Buster Keaton using those faces to try to figure out how do we uh, amplify and animate these characters to this uh, uh, to an extreme place, you know, and and in some sense this this you know Russian spirit, you know, and and. This this revisiting of the of the late nineteen sixties is really interesting. It's really interesting. It's it's not what we were doing then. The sort of the epics of like Lawrence of Arabia or Ben Hur with our super sharp focus cinemascope landscapes. It's more like almost like you know Lenny Richtenstahl or you know Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast or or Abel Gance's uh, Napoleon. If you want to hear of an epic that that does that and this this celebration of of the human spirit you know at the scale of an epic it requires an appreciation of the human soul on the scale of the individual because only then are you prepared you know as in as in war and peace to wrestle with questions of of morality of how to move through this world in a way that respects our own will and our own autonomy while not also we're not hurting anybody else you know that's what war and Peace keeps asking. You can't get to those questions with the best film technology alone. You need also to be able to embrace that weird extra special something about the human soul. And for some reason, it reminds me of this moment. I, uh, it was like one of my first you know, exclusive elite people's cocktail parties. I went to this cocktail party that was thrown for uh, Richard Dawkins when he came to New York. And he's the guy that wrote The Selfish Gene and and um, The God Delusion. He's kind of a, a evolutionary scientist, but a staunch atheist. And he was talking about science and his whole commitment to atheism. And, you know, it's funny. I remember Naomi Wolf was there, the uh, the feminist writer, and at the time, you know, she was she was still in that kind of uh, uh, you know she was the 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 it girl of you know feminist theory right at that moment. This was the early nineties, really, and um, she was defending something beyond atheism, right? She was saying there is something else going on here. There's a soul. There's something spiritual. There's some connection between people. There's something going on in this universe that can't be explained with pure science. And Dawkins was saying, you know, she's deluded and she's nuts. And I, you know, came to her aid as much because I wanted to come to her aid as because as, as believing what she was talking about and I remember I was trying to explain that you know that that we could believe in science and all but still also believe that we live in a in a moral universe that there's something about this universe that not I'm not even talking about the arc towards morality but that the rules there's sort of rules of the game here that are explained in in Bhagavad Gita and the Torah and and the Dhammapada there's there's rules to this reality that are not just the rules of materialist science and and oh god he he you know picked on us so you know even though we were we were just trying to say that yes yeah, science is a terrific model and explains so much but it's still a lens you know evidence based logic is terrific but there's no evidence for assuming we live in an entirely evidence based 
reality. You know, that itself is an assumption. And I got in this big fight with them, and I remember they, they called me a moralist. You know, that was the scientists say, oh, you're a moralist. Yeah, you're an essentialist. You're a moralist. You know, words I had to go look up in, in Wikipedia afterwards. And Funnily enough, you know, 20 years later, these are some of the same scientists who ended up on the Lolita Express flying down to Jeffrey Epstein's island to talk about eugenics and longevity at any cost and other crazy amoral applications of science, all in the presence of Epstein's foot massaging uh, uh, harem of young interns, you know, and Maybe they needed a moralist, right? <laughs> Maybe you need some moralists around, some people who are looking at something other than the molecules and the atoms. You know, and how did science get so anti-spiritual, anti-female? You know, I've talked about some of that. Uh, I've spoken about Francis Bacon and that famous quote, I'm going to, you know, take nature by the by the forelock and hold her down and submit her to my will and all. But I, I started to think more lately about about science's political motives, how scientists kind of partnered and doctors partnered with Christianity in medieval and late medieval times to really repress their competition, which was women and healers. So anything that women were doing, anything that healers were doing, oh, that's superstitious. That's not, you know, that's not God. That's not Christ. You either pray to Christ or go to a real scientist doctor, but don't do any of this stuff. But oddly enough, at the time, it was the scientists, the men of science, who were doing the bloodletting and the leeches and the crazy-ass stuff, while the witches, the supposed pagan uh, spiritualists, the non-scientific ones, they were giving herbs that actually healed people, not through magic, but because they worked. You know, it was much closer to the basis of what we would call medicine and pharmaceuticals today. But, you know, today's overly materialist, applied scientists of the the atheist orthodoxy, the ones who reduce any embrace of the weird as some uh, form of worship of a bearded deity in the sky, they've got similar blind spots. By ignoring the spirit, the soul, they lose touch with the moral core, helping to find what it really means to be human together. Like filmmakers of today pursuing the superficial action over the spiritual dimension, they've got no way of wrestling with big questions. They miss out on the big picture. The movie we're actually living in is better than that. The pandemic has put us online, but it also helped us return to some very local living as well. I've been living here in this little town just north of Yonkers called Hastings-on-Hudson for over a decade, but until now, I haven't really connected as I should have to the local activists and doers making this community work. And there's one guy... I noticed him since I got here. First, at polling sites, whenever I vote, he's checking signatures and handing out ballots. Then I see him at these weekly anti-war protests in our town square. And I've gotten in a couple of conversations with him and found out that, you know, he's been at this a while. He's a truly dedicated political activist, a thinker, and scholar who's, who's committed to local engagement in both national and global issues. So I'm delighted to introduce you to my friend, neighbor, and role model, Frank Broadhead. Thanks, 
Frank, for being on Team Human. I've known you for for probably 10 or 15 years now since I moved to Hastings on Hudson. And I originally just knew you as that anti-war activist guy who would stand around in the middle of town with other people telling us to get out of various war zones. And then I would see you performing civic duties as a a vote count, a poll worker, I guess. I, I was what was called an election inspector. Yeah. Right. Helping us, you know, to do all that and doing all this public service and such. Then I subscribed to your, uh, I guess, weekly newsletter co- that you put out through Concerned Families of Westchester. That's correct. And learning more and more about, I mean, because I'm pretty well studied, but aspects of the economy and media and politics and social justice that. I may not have been as informed about. And then I decided just to poke around and see who is this guy Yikes. and see that you worked with, with Ed Herman. I, I did. It was a great experience. So what? where did you come from? I mean, I know you as a person from my town, which is sort of such a rare and beautiful way to meet a person <laughs> these days in real life. Um, but I'm so interested first in your, in your, in your story. Do, were you a, a, an author, a social theorist, political economist? Where, where did you emerge from? Well, I've had three or four careers. I wouldn't call any of them uh, professions, uh, particularly. When I met Ed, I had just moved from Boston to Philadelphia, where he was living. Uh, That would be 1982. During much of the 70s, I had worked as the staff person for an organization called Resist, R-E-S-I-S-T, that began with a slightly older generation than me in 1967, uh, Noam Chomsky and Grace Paley and others uh, formed an organization to support draft resistance. Lo and behold, the people started donating money for more ads. And so then they began giving out uh, small grants to anti-war organizations and so on. So I became the staff person there in uh, 76. And you had already gone to college and stuff by then? I went to college, and I also went to graduate school where I studied uh, history. This was a short-lived career, though I did finish my doctorate, my PhD, and so on. Oh, wow. Uh, When I moved to Philadelphia in 82, actually, I had just written for our monthly newsletter at Resist a review of Ed Herman's book about the real terror network. Uh, my wife was working at the American Friends Service Committee. Philadelphia was their headquarters. And through American Friends Service Committee, I met Ed, and one thing led to the other, and we started a collaboration on a book about elections called U.S. Staged Elections, Dominican Republic, Vietnam, and El Salvador. Uh, at that time in 82, the United States was both supporting a counterinsurgency war in El Salvador. It's very horrible and so on. And they were putting up uh, an election to essentially ratify the candidate of their choice who would then say that the United States uh, was welcome to invade and bomb their country and so on. So this is sort of in the tradition of, of a Chiquita banana invading and you know basically U.S. government support of kind of corporate extractive ownership of other countries. Well, that was one iteration. Ed's uh, specialty, he had written, and it was yet to be published, but it was published, I think, in 86, uh, a book with Noam Chomsky called uh, Manufacturing Consent. Right. 
and Ed uh, had done a so-called propaganda model uh, for the book, sort of the chapter one, and in a sense, the main framing of the book. And uh, Ed's view, and Noam's also, but Ed's view in particular, was trying to answer the question of how was it that the American free market media, uh, not controlled by a common turn or Politburo or daily meeting of the censors, nevertheless, without fail, turned out a news product that was uh, completely in support or 99% in support of American foreign policy goals. And so the propaganda model attempts, I think, very successfully to answer this question of how is it that in the machinery from a reporter making a phone call to the press hitting the street, uh, the story became the story that was desirable by, let's say, the, the government. And so the project around El Salvador uh, was really uh, a media project talking about the way that the American media framed this election, which was conducted in the middle of wartime with uh, the United States supplying the counterinsurgency, the government uh, training their brigades and so on who would go and kill the peasants who were supporting the rebels. An interesting thing was to compare this, in a sense, the El Salvador 82 election, which was a good election because a candidate who supported the United States won, to compare it to the Nicaragua election of 84, where the candidate who opposed the United States won. So how did the media treat these differently? To give a simple example, in El Salvador, when there were long lines of people waiting to vote, this was not an example of an adequate number of polling places, but it illustrated the great desire of the people of El Salvador to participate in the election. Whereas in Nicaragua, the press without fail would say that there were long lines of people waiting to vote because they were afraid not to vote because the government and police would hurt them or take away their ration cards or something and so on. So in other words, the same qualities that are used to measure whether an election is good or bad for a U.S. staged election uh, gets flipped on their heads when a negative election in the American view uh, is run. So that's how I met Ed. And then later, we got involved in a second book about the shooting of the Pope in 1981 and how the media handled the claim that the Soviets were behind this. And that was just a a wonderful, interesting detective-like adventure. The Soviets weren't behind it, were they? (laughs) No. Uh, Our book was called The Rise and Fall of the Bulgarian Connection, and the claim I mean, so, you know, it's a lot in the weeds, but the claim after the, the, the shooter was a Turkish fascist, a well-known right-wing person. He had killed an important person in Turkey and he escaped, went to Rome and shot the Pope. He didn't kill him, he was wounded him. And uh, after he'd been in jail for about a year, the story was developed by, in particular, a woman named Claire Sterling. And this is, that would be a, digression to get into that. But the story was developed that the shooter, the Turkish fascist, was in fact hired and directed and trained and managed by the Bulgarians. And it was well known the Bulgarians wouldn't do anything without the Russian approval. 
So this then became the story that the attempted assassination on the Pope was the result of uh, Soviet malfeasance. And there were two reasons for this, why this became popular. I mean, in particular, the anti-war people in Europe had organized a big anti-U.S. missile set of demonstrations, a peace offensive. And so to discredit the Soviet Union as a sponsor of a peace offensive after he's been caught red-handed uh, attempting to kill the Pope, this was, this was, in a sense, I think, the American M.O. What happened was, in doing this media study of the way that the media treated the different claims, some of them truly preposterous, was that uh, we got more and more into how it was that the Turkish fascist was induced to make a confession not that he wanted to kill the Pope because the Pope was a, a symbol of Western, Western crusader imperialism, but in fact, he was hired by the Russians. And so we became, in a sense, detectives. that We had to show that he was uh, coached while in prison. This was not that difficult. It was done before uh, computer Google searches were available. So we got lots of help from many people in Europe, but it just took forever. So it's interesting. So, I mean, I was just coming out of college when these stories were happening. I mean, the first thing of this nature I was conscious of was really the Iran-Contra mm -hmm. scandal, which also came out of the same – it's the same people, you know, <laughs> same energy. Very much so. Very much so. You know, and I was part of, I guess, CISPIS. You remember the Columbia students started a um, – Well, yes, I was on the CISPIS staff for maybe a year. Oh, well, thank you. You guys came to the Clash concert at Bond's Casino and radicalized a few thousand of us, you know, while there's Clash is singing Sandinista and these flyers mm -hmm. are falling down from CISPIS about what actually is happening and what we can do about it. Fabulous. It was a, a fascinating moment. And then we get turned on to Chomsky and Herman and, and propaganda model and start understanding sort of institutional propaganda, you know, the, all the different effects that they were that they were writing about, you know, the way that mm -hmm. uh, journalists' access to the White House changes how they cover the White House, and the, the use of flack, yes, calling people communists. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's a, a a fascinating time. And then, what did you do after? You know, what did you do after that? I guess the thing that's interesting <laughs> to me about your trajectory is you didn't take the I'm going to be a noteworthy, famous politico, you know, community organizer that you just kind of do the work. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, very, very much so. Now, I mean, I'm not sure I'm qualified to be a noteworthy, famous uh, organizer. <laughs> so perhaps I'm just working within my limits as they are. But in Boston, when I was in Boston, my most important educational experience was working as an editor of a magazine called Radical America. And this was a magazine that began in 1967 as a uh, SDS history magazine by some people out of Madison. And uh, by 1972, several of them moved to Boston, where I was living. And so I joined the collective. There were a dozen of us, and we would meet weekly. And we would put out a magazine every other month that was one of our main framings, in a sense, was this uh, idea of history from the bottom up. And, of course, history from the bottom up became uh, a trending and, in many ways, a dominant framing of uh, the writing of American history in the 70s and 80s to the present. 
And a great many of the people who became famous as Hisu from the bottom up people, we, we published one of their uh, very junior minor league articles and stuff. And it was terrific. Ex- it was a terrific experience. So these are people like, like Zinn, like People's History of the United States. Is that what bottom up history uh, that, is? That would be correct. That would be correct. Yeah. Right. So for, for people who don't know it, so it's like telling history rather than this dictator talked to this diplomacy guy in a, at the UN. It's more looking at what was going on on the ground. So what was it like for Native Americans during? The, <laughs> the Western invasion, you know, from the, the bottom up point of view, what's happening on the ground for the people of Boston when British East India Trading Company is dominating their, their businesses, rather than looking at it from, from King George's perspective? Well, we were a bit more modern than that. Our field was particularly in the socialist and labor movements of the uh, 20th century. And then not too long into the uh, 1970s, we had many fine women uh, feminist historians join the magazine. And so this was really where the action was in many respects in the 70s in the development of a feminist or women's uh, history. And so sort of a topic sentence here was what it was an enormous privilege and benefit for me to uh, work with this uh, group, learning much more than I could possibly have learned in any you know, more formal educational setting. And a particular thought I've often discussed with my friends or some friends in doing a magazine, it's a little similar perhaps to your show, is that how does it differ from a seminar? And the difference is that at the end of the day on the magazine, the rubber had to hit the road. We had to decide whether to publish this or not publish this or how many changes were necessary or whether the changes were sufficient. And also thinking about who our audience was and what kind of information we wanted to transmit, uh, whether we were talking to scholars or to, let's say, perhaps college-educated activists or something. So it was very uh, informative beyond just learning facts and ideas about American history. Did it look and feel like, you know, the movies recreating, you know what I mean, early 70s radicalism with people, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking, I don't know, coffee and wearing berets and stuff in little shabby little offices? I mean, <laughs> the uh, SDS National and, you know, the New York office of SDS, for example, perhaps was a little bit like that in the uh, late uh, 60s or mid 60s. Um, our magazine was <laughs> done in people's living rooms. When I talk to people about kind of back in the day and so on, I often become a contrarian if people want to say, oh, that was so great and so cool back then. Everybody's going to say, well, actually, no, it wasn't. No, it was very difficult. And there were a lot of uh, sort of interpersonal and other issues. And uh, it was very difficult for, let's say, a cadre of young people I mean, we were getting older, but it was a cadre in a sense, a generational movement among white people. Among white people, it was a generational movement that really missed and lacked the uh, guidance and, in a sense, muscle power of an older generation, the communists who had been wiped out and the socialists and just plain thinking people who had been driven off the rails by the McCarthy era of the late 40s and really through 1960. We miss them sorely. Everything had to be, in a sense, invented. The experiences that they had had 
one of the things that our magazine people did, what we did, was to try to you know interview these people, very valuable people, and without kind of getting into names, uh, you know, the, just having the perspective of people who had been through some of this stuff before was you know particularly valuable. We thought. Now the situation is quite different uh, in the sense that the young people do have an older generation, which turns out to be my, my generation, whether we are useful to them is another story. You know, I mean, in a sense, it's up to, to them. But in a way, the movement now in terms of age range is much more representative of the country than it was in the 60s and the 70s, when particularly among white people, it was very, very young and experimental. And, uh, right. you know, a lot of water over the dam. Well, the universities were kind of cleared out. You know, when, when I was in college in the in the early 80s, you could count the out-of-the-closet Marxists in faculty on, your, on one hand, you know? <laughs> there was... Well, that was more of a handful than uh, I had when I was in college in the early 60s. I remember uh, one teacher wanted to have a one class about socialism, he had to bring in a Jewish guy from New York to talk about socialism. You know, there was nobody on campus to talk about it. I mean, it was just like all out of central casting in a sense right. about the uh, the obtuseness and the retro nature of this, you know, relatively high quality school. Yeah, well, that was, you know, that was by design. I mean, McCarthy on the one hand and then funding, you know, <laughs> funding on the other hand was all, you know, geared toward a certain kind of intellectual being uh, it was, entrusted it was, to the It was kids. fear. It was fear on the part of professors. They, there wasn't such a thing as not only job security, but life security. And this, this, this changed as we moved into the 1960s, you know, the House and american Activities Committee for example, uh, was still alive and well in 1960, 61, 62, that we weren't, we weren't done with this. And uh, now, nowadays, it's, it's really a great benefit that there's uh, many, at least there, is some, there are some uh, left to center thinkers and so on, and particularly among women scholars, it's uh, very creative. When you do look at the, the university scene today, I mean, I find... And I know this is considered dangerous conversation at this point, but I mean, I find the people that uh, were in the positions where they may have been, you know, promoting Marxism or socialism or alternative economic theory have moved almost exclusively into kind of critical intersectionalist theory. And it, it almost feels in, at least in the few departments that I've interacted with at universities, that there's almost an either-or conflict between, oh, are we going to do identity politics or kind of political economy, as if they're incompatible. And I'm still confused as to where that, that divide happened, you know, so that, you know, say a Bernie agenda ends up seemingly at odds with uh, an, an intersectional agenda, whereas as I, as I came up, those were kind of the same, the same struggle. Not being associated with the universities, although I mean, I'm very interested in what happens on universities, but not being associated, I really can't uh, speak knowledgeably about that. I would say that to a certain extent, my ballpark theory is that the fact of faculty and the tenor 
of campus radicalism depends a lot on what the movement is in the outsider larger society. Right. So it's a tragedy in many ways, but uh, one of the tragedies of the past year is at a time when the Black Lives Matter movement was uh, so strong and represented such a wide uh, spectrum of the population that the universities were closed. And so there was not a, a, a campus locus for mm. radical political development. Uh, looking back, it might be that this would say, oh, that was fortunate. That was fortunate that people were forced to deal with the, in a sense, the local police rather than the campus police and so on. This was fortunate in the development or maturation of the political movement, but it's simply different. And it, I think it's very hard to answer your question, and I'm certainly not the one to do it. Yeah, but that is interesting that the, the you know, when I came up too, the campuses were the locus of this kind of political activity for better and for worse. Because if you're on campus and you're in college, you're already kind of insulated from the real world. You're getting a college education, so you're part of a, a, a privileged group, you know, whether you're taking loans to do it or not. And it was strange, you know, so you march from your campus into town and the townies are looking at you as, oh, there's the college kids complaining about the war. Do you know what I mean? As if we're not of the people in the same way that uh, these sort of more extra campus uh, uh, protests are. Well, yes, I think this is a facet of that point I made a few minutes ago about that during the anti-war movement, the white movement, uh, you know, outside of New York City and a few other places, but in general, the white movement was a campus-based movement of younger people. And this was unfortunate because we really needed, in a sense, uh, the concerned families of the townies to be a partner for, let's say, student radicalism and stuff like that. The magazine that I mentioned before was part of, was a part of a generational development among former campus radicals uh, who, in a sense, had graduated from college, so they were no longer likely to be campus radicals. And so there was a, for example, a movement of I'm not sure about thousands, but many hundreds. There's a movement that had a lot of intellectual impact. People went to work in factories, the mines or to make community organizations to, in a sense, embed in a community. And this was, in some cases, successful, in many cases not. But there was a consciousness that the that the that uh, those who could needed to develop a non-campus-based radicalism. It's interesting. I was just, uh, I don't know why it calls this to mind, but the thing I keep thinking about is the way that you do, that you've personally moved from kind of a more, I don't know, a, a, a ideological or even national movements to to highly local ones. I was doing an interview, I forgot for what, um, this week, and they asked me, oh, are my, am I concerned that because now Biden is president and Trump isn't, that everyone's just going to go back to normal and say, okay, everything's fine, and that they won't want to be involved anymore. And I felt like what they were missing was that there's a difference between being involved in politics and being involved in civics. You know, it's like you don't have to always be campaigning for a candidate in some ways. Fine. I, I don't have a problem with people saying, oh, good. 
Biden is president. We've got a, a tiny but existing kind of democratic pseudo majority. I'm not going to worry about what, you know, marching for candidates right now outside of an election cycle, but it frees up time to now do actual civics, to look at how is my school dealing with COVID? How is our tax base? How, who needs food? Who needs money? Do you know what I mean? It's a- Oh, very much so. Sure. So they're really two, they're, they're related, but they're two different things. I mean, we can do civics together, even if we're voting completely differently. This, of course, is an issue that our group has discussed and discussed a lot, not only in terms of ourselves and what we think, but trying to make an assessment about what other groups, let's say, in the, the, you know, the surrounding area of uh, Westchester or Yonkers, whatever, the Bronx, uh, you know, in a sense, our turf. I think also the four years of Trump truly was exhausting, and it's not a surprise, and uh, I don't hold it against people to say, i got to take a couple weeks off to just catch my breath. You know, this has been so exhausting. And there was a way in which um, I think people have really shifted gears towards a more comfortable, or at least not waking up in the morning wondering if we're at war with somebody, as we did for four years. Having said that, Cracks are uh, beginning to appear in the kind of wonderfulness of the Biden administration. Some of these are domestic cracks, like, you know, what about the student loan forgiveness or what about the children at the border and so on. And so there are there remain issues that people who have been involved in these issues before, they certainly have their work cut out for them. The two main issues, as it were, team human uh, agenda, that is uh, the danger of nuclear war and the certainty of climate disaster, these are not going to be, we hope that the rejoining of the climate agreement will be an important step. But I think people who are skeptical about the willingness of Biden to take dramatic steps, the so-called like Green New Deal, for example, oh, no, he's not going to do that, and so on, that that's, I think, a, a clue that this, is, this problem will remain unsolved at the end of his four years, and so on. And in terms of war, to a certain extent, the danger of war and nuclear war is in, in some ways greater than it was under uh, Trump. I mean, the feature of Trump is you never knew what he would do from minute to minute, and nuclear war, you know, was <laughs> it was one of the things he might do. So that's true. But Biden is, to a certain extent, uh, duplicating the Obama war policies, which were quite aggressive. And to the aggressiveness towards Russia, there is now added an aggressiveness towards China, presumably this will kind of renew or an aggressiveness towards North Korea. It looks like troops will not be withdrawn from Afghanistan and from Syria or not be withdrawn from Iraq. And the uh, Iran nuclear agreement looks like it's being massaged in a direction where it will not be restored for you know, sort of some detailed reasons and so on. So in all of these areas, uh, anti-war people, that since we really have our work cut out for us. And why is it, why do you think the Democrats, you know, the sort of the Clinton, Obama, Biden Democrats have aligned themselves with, you know, this more uh, hawkish uh, side of the spectrum? I think to a certain extent, that's sort of like a, a seminar in American history about how we got from, say, World War II to the present under 
not just democratic administrations, but that there was a sense in which the foreign policy that we've had has been uh, bipartisan. Certainly, the Bush, Rumsfeld, Cheney era right. was not an era of peace and so on. No. And uh, I think it's really hard to characterize Trump, at least now. So, so Biden, to a certain extent, is like politics as usual. But the question is, why is this politics as usual? I mean, it's really an excellent question. It deserves a lot of uh, study and so on. I think a framing of sort of making the world safe for American investment or, in a sense, uh, controlling areas, not necessarily because they're beneficial, but to prevent the control of an area. Let's take Africa, for example, to prevent uh, Africa from being controlled by another big country. Uh, currently now, China is uh, quite aggressive in terms of making alliances, investments, and loans, and so on in Africa. How does the United States feel about that? Well, I think that you know, it's not like the United States feels that China is going to attack the United States from Africa. Right. But it's sort of like retaining market share or something like that. Right. And I guess it's really for American corporations to feel safe <laughs> doing business in all these places. It's funny. I remember uh, – uh, it, apropos of nothing, but maybe as a metaphor, I remember when um, we went to Israel when I was a kid. And – you know, my mom and dad, brother, and me. And my mom decides... You what know, what we, uh, year did you go, roughly? Oh, God. Uh, Mid-70s. must have been 76, okay. 77. Okay. Yeah. And we're wandering around in Jerusalem, and then we see, you know, an interesting little old Jerusalem, an interesting little thing. And we start walking, and my dad says, you know, we're, we're in the Arab section of Jerusalem now. And my mom, her first reaction was... Do you have the American Express traveler's checks? As if it was interesting psychologically, she felt maybe she watched those, you know, Carl Malden commercials, you know, don't leave home without it. But the idea that she had American Express traveler's checks was as if she was bringing the full force and weight of our diplomatic corps and the State Department and the military with her into the Arab section. Uh, I kind of feel like that's part of what the American war machine is about to some extent. It's so Dow and whoever can go to a country and be like, we're, we're here. Give us your stuff. Well, in general, I think that the maintaining a, what you might call a positive investment climate is, is a, a main framing of American attitudes towards foreign governments. You know, the government of Bolivia went from bad to good to bad now and so on. It has to do with the likely cooperation of the Bolivian government to American investment interests. And on a country-by-country -country basis, this may not be a very big deal, but multiplying by about 100 different small or mid-sized uh, countries, it really becomes a, a, a dominant feature in a way that the U.S. foreign policy is uh, framed, and you know, very consciously so. I mean, it's not, a, it's not just uh, kind of accidental that it happens. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in, in local civic engagement. And sometimes it feels like this little town we're in, Hastings-on-Hudson, it, it fractures so quickly. You know, we're going to put a new football field. You know, is it going to be turf or grass? And people are, feels like at each other's throats 
over things like that? Or are we going to have the kids uh, three feet apart or six feet apart in the school under COVID? And you look on Facebook and they're just like wailing on each other about, about an issue like that. And it seems uh, you know, I was I was at, and I've I've mentioned it on this show before. I was at one of our uh, uh, town meetings, or it was a school budget meeting, a few years ago when people were really there was a big campaign to vote down the school budget. And I remember a woman got up and she said, "I don't have any kids in the school. I don't see why I should pay a school tax at all." And I thought, "Wow, all right, so we're like civics are are." sort of feels like our common understanding of civics and how to do civics and how to get along um, civically, even with people we don't like, seems to have diminished. I mean, is that true? Or has it always been this hard for people to just carry on together? Well, uh, you know, my experience is limited, like (laughs) just in one lifetime. Well, and one town. I mean, what you've certainly been, how long have you been in Hastings here? Um, 25 years. Actually, a formative experience I didn't mention is that I worked at a tenants' rights organization in Philadelphia for 15 years, and this was a very interesting experience in terms of being outside of an all-white environment. And I think that this has been an important thing to shape my own interests or my own thinking about working locally. I'm not sure that I would say that the polarization of a place like Hastings is greater or worse than I've known in the past. Certainly, people who moved to Westchester, I was just noticing the median family income is two hundred and something thousand dollars. Oh these my are, God! Well, you know these, but you know, moving just on from that, these are you know highly educated uh, uh, right. people. I'm not talking about wisdom. I'm talking about that these people are sort of t- trained to be articulate, and many of them make their living by being articulate. Um, so the fact that something like a, a, a Facebook or a town meeting or a school budget meeting might have uh, an argumentative set of people, not necessarily all lawyers, but there's a bunch of them too, I, I don't think it's a, a big surprise. One of the things that, of course, we don't have in Westchester is we don't have anything like a locally based media. Our county county newspaper is, you know, simply a joke and an advertising thing that we don't have an alternative newspaper. We have a couple of uh, local, you know, Channel 12 type uh, local coverage, but it's very difficult for people to communicate with each other by way of the media. Other, other than through Facebook, and this is uh, certainly different than the, quote, community organizing style of, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Right. And it's a platform that's, that's fine-tuned to elicit conflict, you know, to, to sensationalize issues and polarize people. I mean, that's, that's the business model. So it's not necessarily a great place to reach civic consensus. Our our group, as you sort of alluded, we have a uh, weekly rally. We've been doing this now for about 17 years, I guess, going back to 2002. And our goal is to pass out leaflets and to get in conversations with people who are passing by. Obviously, this is a you know a limited number of people. For example, we'll print a hundred leaflets for. Uh, a rally and uh, probably have some left over. So we don't encounter that many people, but it's one thing that we do. And then we also have this uh, 
weekly newsletter, but they, this goes to people who have already indicated some interest in the issues that we've been developing. A uh, number of people have been involved recently in our group, for example, in the controversy around the police reform task force. You know, it's just a small minority of people, but uh, the people in our group have been pointing out, I think, the flaws in the draft report and the uh, failure of the task force and the board of trustees to even consider that racism might be a problem, something to talk about and address in, in Hastings and so on. Right. And this is because the state, I think it was New York State, said that every yes. town needed to do an evaluation of its... Uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that on the part of Governor Cuomo that this was sort of a counterinsurgency thing that is to deal with the huge uprising around the Black Lives Matter and post-George Floyd demonstrations, arguably the largest sustained protest in American history and uh, multiracial, multigenerational. is truly amazing. And the normal uh, business leadership 101 bureaucracy way to head off this stuff is to have a study committee, uh, some way to study this. And so everybody was supposed to uh, stop protesting and uh, work with their local government to say how the police should be different. Um, I think the Hastings report is a disaster. Apparently, the Greenberg report is pretty good, for example. A number of other reports in Westchester are good, and they greatly vary a lot. I, I would guess that they vary by the extent to which uh, the members of the police force are present or absent in all the committees of the task force, but that's just a guess. Well, right. Who shows up is a is a big part well, of it. Well, they're 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 appointed and assigned and so on. So this is not just uh, oh. random. This is sort of a choice on the part of the mayor, board of trustees, whatever is running the town. Uh, perhaps whatever degree of fear there is that people would make a mess and there would be a protest. I think so much of uh, local politics, not the kind of issues that we raise in our uh, rallies and so on, but so much of ordinary local politics has to do with maintaining the sort of resale value of people's main asset, that is their home. And the last thing that uh, responsible political leadership is asked to do, or that what they're asked to do is to maintain a stable climate, almost like U.S. foreign policy, a good investment environment. So that when they're ready to move, their their home is, is very valuable. So controversies in the school, controversies involving the police, something that gets in the newspaper that looks very bad. These are things that uh, are, are definitely contrary to the values of local government. Right. I mean, yeah, this is, a, a, you know, the experience I had when I got, I got, was living in, in, Brooklyn and Park Slope and got mugged outside my rental apartment and posted it on the Park Slope parents list, which is a good lefty email list. And people emailed me complaining that I said where I got mugged, that it would affect their property values. Well, <laughs> I said, oh my gosh. So you care more about the the your, the value of your property than the experience of actually living on that street. In other words, so we can't have a discussion about you know crime in our neighborhood <laughs> because it changes the the asset value is worth more than the experiential value of your of your home. Well, this actually fits into a number of the themes in your own book, uh, Team right. Team Human, and so on. The conflict between, in a sense. Uh, 
the exchange value of the things of modern life and the use value. Right. But it also goes to the kind of history you were talking about, you know, the bottom-up history. It's back back to, you know, what's the actual on-the-ground lived experience and, uh, you know, and whether we can kind of develop uh, policy and politics, you know, from the bottom up in that way, rather than these kind of master plans from the top down, you know, the, the more, almost today, the more techno-solutionist, you know, approaches to, uh, population management, which are, are scary to me. Yes, of course. Uh, perhaps you're familiar with this book, Surveillance Capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. It seems to me, I mean, this is something that <laughs> we laugh at ourselves in our group meetings. You know, this is something for younger people. You know, We need to get some younger people to explain to us what's going on. But in general, the technological developments around artificial uh, intelligence or in war uh, drones or in uh, business, the uh, sort of psychological profiling that's so advanced now is is uh, quite amazing, quite amazing. And uh, when people talk about it as 1984, a brave new world, I don't think they're exaggerating. Right. I mean, do you feel having seen a few turns of the cycle, I mean, I've seen one or two, you've seen two or three more than me now. Are you uh, hopeful? I mean, do you feel like we're, and I hate to use a word like this, but do you feel like we're making progress or have we been kind of regressing? You know, uh, certainly climate seems as bad as ever, but maybe because of Greta and kids and there's a different awareness of it. So the Italian Antonio Gramsci, you know, had the uh, slogan about pessimism of the intelligence, uh, optimism of the spirit. I'm sure it sounded better in Italian, but (laughs) I think this dichotomy between what we hope and the rays of sunshine that we see or think we see or want to see is often in conflict with what we think. It's almost beyond imagining how the team human Uh, the human species can pull out of this uh, climate crisis uh, before total disaster sets in. On the other hand, uh, what would be the point of giving up in uh, despair? Uh, And so we try to use our rational part of our brain to magnify the prospects that appear to be hopeful and uh, hope for the best people who say, oh, this is not going to work. It makes more sense to be a a hedonist and to enjoy our remaining time and for our children to enjoy a lot of their remaining life and too bad about our great-grandchildren. It's hard to argue with people like that other than to say that this is, in a sense, uh, not being part of the human species and trying to have our species uh, uh, survive this self-inflicted wound that we've suddenly discovered. Right. It's as if they're willing to go to uh, the palliative care hospice stage, you know, <laughs> put on nice music, get them some pillows and let them, you know, live out the remainder in as little pain as possible. But there are still glimmers of hope, rays of hope. I mean, and and I mean, you're taking a, a kind of a broad spectrum approach to the problem of doing both extremely local politics or or, or 
local communication, local networking, uh, local consciousness raising, and at the same time, I guess, organizing the occasional you know, trip to a protest or fundraiser for something larger or letter writing campaign to politicians. So, I mean, is, is, is your advice kind of to, to balance uh, local activism with larger efforts? Because so many of our listeners, of my listeners, are looking, well, what do I do? Do I just mm-hmm. give money to the Wildlife Fund? Do I quit my job and try to volunteer for a permaculture farm? I mean, it's it's hard to know what kind of actions to take in the with the rest of our lives that, that what we have control over anyway in order to avert this this catastrophe. Well, if you have an audience of a thousand or people, you'll have a uh, you'll have a situation of a thousand different uh, contexts in which to deal with. It's very hard to think about one size fits all. On the other hand, it seems to me that the if a, we used to have a leaflet that we would pass out called "I'm Against War," but what can one person do? And numero uno was to stop being one person to find others who agree with you, either who are already, in a sense, protesting against war, or simply friends and neighbors who feel the same way you do, and to sit down and have a talk and see if people would like to join together and work together to do what they can. This is how Concerned Families uh, started uh, the day after 9-11 with some conversations, and one thing led to another. Obviously, it's easiest, easier to get a group together and thinking about something during a big crisis when suddenly everybody is uh, wide awake and so on. Right right uh, now or during Trump, it might have been easier also, but there are many times when things are very sluggish and it's hard to interest others. But I think the first thing is to not, not be by yourself. I think that uh, working on war and climate change are being the main existential issues that we have, that this makes the most sense. But there are many, many important issues, uh, many issues which are particularly important to individuals, certainly people of color, women different than men, people who work in one or another uh, factory or office. Uh, these may be your environment. I remember during the U.S. invasion of Panama, we'd started a, a group in our office building, you know, 13 floors of you know, this and that. Notices in the elevator, people want to talk about the invasion of Panama, let's meet at noon in the cafeteria or something like that. I think that it's very important to work, uh, to start locally, to engage uh, people who you see in daily life in the store and so on, and not just to see them once uh, by going to New York City or White Plains or some church or something and then receive them again, but to try to engage them on a consistent basis. And people say, oh, you're the people who stand around at noon and do this and that. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's me. <laughs> but the other the other beauty of that is you end up in kind of broader spectrum relationships. So if the person that you're having meetings with about the state of labor in America lives in your town and is also aware that when the A&P in our town closed, that the people who own that friggin' company gave themselves bonuses off the employee's pension fund, then go out of business and then say the employees can't get their pensions. So you're in the town where that's happening, living and working and, and protesting with the people who are actually affected by that action, it intersects very differently than it does if it's some, you know, uh, long distance national campaign on on the ideology of labor. 
There's several dozen people who are sort of the core of our group, and we meet frequently. To a certain extent, it's like the British Constitution. We don't have a mission statement or bylaws or so on. What we are is what we've done in a sense. When it's time to do something new, we say, well, we haven't done this before, so we're at square one. But very often, you know, in the past, we've done this or supported that and so on. So should we do that or should we jigger it a little bit, change it a little bit. One of the things that's happening now, because there are so many uh, movements going on, is that on an individual basis, uh, people are hooking up with other organizations to de facto become part of a network. Uh, For example, I recently uh, became on the steering committee of the New York Peace Action, for example, a venerable uh, anti-war organization. Others involved with showing up for racial justice or Jewish voice for peace and so on. And so to a certain extent, the networks can be stronger or weaker, but I think we all perceive that this is important. Also for our uh, neighborhood, we finally elected a radical, excellent uh, congressional representative, uh, Jamal Bowman, for many years, uh, we had either Elliot Engel or Nita Lowy. So the idea of telling people, well, call your congressman was just ridiculous and a joke because they were not anti-war. They were not interested in anything other than what the Democratic Party leadership was putting forward, whereas Jamal Bowman is a, is a, a, a true, true uh, radical. Right. Yeah, for people who haven't heard, it's like having our own, you know, AOC or something. That's right. Yonkers. That's right. It's an amazing thing. That's right. So we're very fortunate that finally, for the first time in the existence of our organization, we can feel that there's some usefulness in talking to our congressperson. We also have a big asset in the sense that the majority leader in the Senate, uh, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, is our senator as well. So when people in New York State say, you know, please, let's do something, do something, say, well, we can do something. We can go see her, write to her, whatever, you know, we can do something, even though we're small. Well, and it's also, it's not just that it proves that now we have someone, you know, in power or in politics that we can talk to, but it shows the power of us talking to one another to actually get something done. You know, so many, so many of us, particularly who've, you know, been raised in the internet age, you know, they get we get activated and then we want to start our own website or create our own app to solve voting or our own this rather than just going outside and like you're saying, find the others who are involved and and get involved with them or see what organizations already exist that you can join and, and help renew and restore and bring new vitality to them. The organizations for the most part are there. They're out there. You know, if they're not, if you don't have one locally, you could start one, but boy, there's so much ground has been covered. I mean, you know, certainly if you're here in Hastings and listening, I don't know how many Hastings listeners we have, but, but you know, joined, joined Frank and Concerned Families of Westchester. But if you're not, they're around and they're, they're real. And um, I'm hoping what people can, can kind of take away from this conversation is it's not like some second class thing to do local civic action, local politics, local engagement, that the people around you are the intellectuals, are the activists that you want to engage with. You know, you don't have to go to Cambridge or Arizona and find Noam Chomsky to have (laughs) that conversation. You know what I mean? It's like, 
it's it, it it's beyond the time for celebrities and star power. It's 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 time to actually do this stuff from the bottom up. And 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 that's why I'm so inspired by someone like you, Frank, because it's like, oh, you're just doing it, you know, and with result. And even if we don't get result from it, you get spiritual uh, nourishment from it. You know what I mean? It's nourishing to the soul. Very, very much so. It's uh, This wasn't the uh, goal in setting out, but just simply over the years and the you know logical consequence of uh, essentially uh, forming a group of people who live more or less in the same area, three or four towns along the Hudson River, is that we become a, a supportive uh, community. Somebody gets uh, cancer, uh, somebody is sick, somebody needs a ride, somebody needs visitors, somebody's short of money, is that it's, it's very, very natural to uh, help out. And this is an, I mean, speaking personally, this is an enormous uh, sort of security blanket in a way. Who else is going to help out? Who else can you call? And so on. So uh, willy-nilly, we now have very strong friendship networks. Also, simply, uh, I use the phrase sometimes casting down your bucket where you are, simply organizing in your town, uh, discover that people who seem pretty ordinary have this secret magic talent of uh, musicians or uh, technical skills or speaking ability or artistic ability, uh, highly organized, who knew, you know, kind of thing. And uh, it's, it, I think, reinforces the idea that people are pretty wonderful on the whole and have uh, capacities that ordinarily they're not asked to use or they, they sometimes uh, it's not part of their profession, so they lie dormant, and, and all of a sudden you find out somebody is uh, bringing real sparkle to your meeting or your work. Yeah. Well, you've brought sparkle to my life. I'll tell you, I move here. I got my three-year-old daughter in the back of the Honda Fit coming back from the farmer's market. And I'm someone's holding up a sign, honk if you're against the war. I honk the horn. And the three-year-old, she asks, Daddy, why are you honking the horn? And then that opens up you know, her first real conversation about what is activism, <laughs> what oh. is war. And, uh, uh, you know, so you've, you've certainly, uh, you've light up my life and I'm, I'm <laughs> so glad for your, uh, tirelessness. Um, uh, it certainly fed me and, and, uh, I look forward to, uh, to a whole lot, uh, more years together. Well, we're, we're all hoping for more years. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, thanks for your good wishes. Yeah, yeah, we'll do this as long as we can. And uh, younger people are beginning to join also. I, 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 I'm optimistic. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Frank Broadhead. You can find out more about Frank and all of our guests by going to the links at teamhuman.fm, where you can also become a subscribing member of the show and get access to bonus content, live events, our Discord channels, and other cool stuff. Team Human is produced by Josh Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.